Welcome to Office Hours. How is everyone today? I'm Mike Diamond and Dave is somewhere in Scotland. We don't know if he's a ghost or what's going on. My incredible co-host Michael Unbroken is in the car at Joshua Tree doing something spiritual because that's why you go to Joshua Tree. That's and right, brother. First, yes, and our first guest is the incredible Scott Reed. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Great to be here. Nice to see you, Michael. Well, so Scott, let's just jump right in. You're uh, you're the chief optimizer at E and now it's ecom commerce or e-commerce. How do you pronounce it exactly? E-commerce optimizers. Okay. So let's jump into what now it says the I what is traffic tunnel vision? What do you mean by what is traffic tunnel vision for people listening? Uh, traffic tunnel vision is a cognitive bias that causes marketers to mistakenly believe that um, uh, spending more money on traffic, in other words, increasing their, their marketing uh, spend is the best or optimal thing to do in terms of growing revenue. Um, and in, in terms of uh, what we do for companies, it's, it's, it's very relevant uh, with the tra whole traffic tunnel vis vision concept because my role as chief optimizer at, and founder at, at uh, e-commerce optimizers is to boost revenue and profit for direct-to-consumer e-commerce brands simply by turning more of their website visitors into customers. Awesome. Mike? Scott, I love that. So my, my background, I've actually run multiple e-commerce stores where we do multiple awesome. seven figures. And you know, one of the things that's really dangerous is being dogmatic, right, yeah. in your approach and in the Absolutely. way that you go into finding your, your clientele and your customers. We, we see more and more, and actually there was just a report recently, there's now more bot traffic on websites than human traffic on websites. So talk to me about the play that you guys bring to the table and how you stand out and help uh, entrepreneurs, business owners, change makers in the e-commerce space actually really be able to capitalize on the ROI and the ROAS of, of their projects. Yeah, so how about if, if I um, just start with just a quick uh, um, review of what I see in the market. And, and 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 the and the challenges that arise when somebody has that dogmatic perspective in terms of traffic does that does that sound good and then we can talk about yeah, 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 absolutely. About, about, about some of the ways that that we can improve things so revenue growth is just a massive challenge as i'm sure that you you can appreciate that michael um for um e-commerce brands to achieve and achieving profitable revenue is is uh it, it's 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 quite a bit harder um, now, there's two primary strategies that companies typically take when they're um, attempting to grow revenue. And I refer to these on, on one side as the common approach and on the other side as the high impact solution. So the common approach is just to buy more traffic, okay? Increase your marketing spend to get more people to visit your website in the hope, and that's a, that's a key term here, in the hope that they'll become customers. So it's as simple as that, just buy more traffic. Now, as you know, and, and people listening to, 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 the pod, to, to the podcast and the show will know that this strategy, it can help to increase revenue, but there are some significant challenges when it comes to uh, expense and effectiveness of that traffic. Now, interestingly, um, and you brought up bot traffic, but I always like uh, uh, to, to reference statistics when I'm looking at uh, making a point or looking to make a point. So according to eMarketer, they do a lot with uh, digital marketing statistics. In 2022, direct-to-consumer direct e-commerce brands invested over uh, $20 billion in digital advertising. 
But wow. when you apply the average conversion rate of, you know, it's about two to 3%, depending on who you're looking at, obviously there's some high and some lower, but the average is about two to 3%. That means that 97% or over $19 billion could have been allocated more effectively. So there's, there's a tremendous amount of room for improvement when it comes to traffic effectiveness. And so I refer to this approach as the common approach because a very, very high percentage of marketers use this strategy. They're dogmatic about it when trying to grow revenue. But, th but there's a big key that is that, is that they're, they're doing that without considering alternatives. And so the high impact solution, it's one of the very best alternatives that uh, e-commerce brands can adopt to uh, increase the revenue. And so what that means, and the, the definition of my definition of the high impact solution is instead of focusing solely on traffic, optimize your website by making it easier to navigate, to locate relevant products and com actually complete a transaction. So in other words, just simply make it easier and more enjoyable for potential customers to do business with you. Simple as that. And, you know, if we break it down, because we can talk about, yeah, that's a better idea all day long, but we really have to look at how the numbers pan out, because that's the only reason that you would want to adopt the high impact solution over just buying traffic. So, um, you know, think about it. If you have 100,000 people that visit your website and 2% of them buy something worth 50, 50 bucks, you're going to generate about 100 grand in revenue, right? Okay. But if you made your website better by optimizing it, by improving it, uh, so that 3% of the people bought something and they spent more money during that visit, let's say they bought $75 on average versus 50 and they're coming back to make an extra purchase because the experience was so great about half the time, the revenue goes up to $337,500, which is 237% increase. So the bottom line is that when you make your website better, you can grow your revenue in a big way. And it's much mm -hmm. more effective than simply buying traffic, which is what most people do. And that's what traffic tunnel vision is all about. It's having that tunnel vision that that's the only way to go. And what happens is when e-commerce marketers and business owners adopt that, that, that mindset, they just leave a massive amount of money on the table. It's, it's staggering what I see on a regular basis. Mm. Um, and that strategy it's, it's, you guys probably have heard the terms uh, CRO, conversion rate optimization, conversion optimization, A-B testing, experimentation. That's what in, in the typical digital marketing nomenclature, that's what um, optimization is commonly referred to as. Do you think, oh, sorry, Scott, you're going to say, Mike, you were no. going to say something or not? No, go, go. no. So I have a question. So Scott, that's really great to know because a lot of people get caught up and they'll see like, I, you know, we all know like a Grant Cardone, they're spending like thousands and thousands and, and Gary V, you know, to, yeah. to push traffic to the websites, but all, they've also got a lot of content and they've built up, they're spending other areas. So do you think there's a balance? So for example, you, you, when you say optimize your website, um, the one thing I think I can, cause I come from New York originally. And when we, when we opened up clubs and that, if I met you, Scott, the most important way to convert you, was to build a relationship with you before social media. Yep. And if I went to your work office or I threw a party, I would go to random places. And Jason Noah, who's a partner in Tal Group, he always used to do the same thing. I would want to engage with you. So then you then engage with everyone else and felt so invited mm -hmm. that then you went and told everyone else. So it became a special thing for you. 
so if people are spending to optimize their website, is there also a better way that they can also, if you engage with me through the website and say, I got to reach out to this Scott and, and people forget it's called social media, but then actually don't socialize on the media or the platform. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So do you think if they can combine, they have the ability to not be lazy, because you've got to spend a little bit, let's be honest, you got yep. to, but, you, but, you, but you can't have that tunnel vision of overspending. So what's that balance? Is, do you think there's a laziness to, oh, I'll just do it this way and, and you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's it's an awesome question. I, I I really really appreciate the question. the The thing is, is that both strategies, um, are, are in my opinion, are required. And if if you want to grow your revenue in a profitable manner, okay. And the reason for that is that a website without traffic does not make any money. If if, if the website doesn't have visitors, it's not going to do a darn thing. Right? Yeah, you're not there, right? So, yeah. So you really have to blend both strategies together. And that's when it works the best is because think about it when you, when you are um, uh, um, sending traffic to the website, to a better website, all your visitors, not just the new visitors, but all the visitors, the repeat customers are, are, are having a better experience. And so it really helps um, uh, drive revenue. It creates a tremendous amount, a higher, much higher level of um of uh, uh, customer appreciation, customer loyalty, there's all sorts of things. But in answering your question about engagement, that is one thing in terms of traffic that I definitely see way too many people just focusing on is that they focus on just sending traffic that's that's has the 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 intended purpose or the desired ob objective of closing a, a of, of just uh, closing the deal, and that's it. So they're going right to the throat without. Um, uh, um, without sending people to their website with the um, uh, with the with the specific objective of creating awareness, and then the other bucket would be with a specific um, uh, objective of creating engagement, because you have to be aware of something before you're going to buy it. And you ha in my opinion, the best buyers are the ones who have engaged with your product for a while, or with your website and your marketing messaging and all that stuff. So there's really that engagement piece is crucial in terms of proper traffic management. Um, so it starts with the awareness, it goes to engagement, and then it goes to the conversion um, uh, type traffic, if you will. Does that answer your Scott, question? Yeah, it's amazing. Scott, what's, what is, because obviously we have a ton of entrepreneurs, business owner here, uh, people who are marketing executives, who are trying to obviously make revenue, grow their businesses, scale and expand. What is one thing that they can do right now that's easy, that's to the point that can change the game for them if they do it effectively? I would say one of the biggest things above all is to expose your site search. Okay, so you know on desktop, and this would be a desktop application. On desktop, a lot of times they'll just have the magnifying glass up in the up in the upper right hand corner okay so if you expose that site search and put it front and center so that people can easily find the products that they're looking for that does mm. that, that, that's a huge win it almost always pays off simply exposing the site search um, and do you, do you need any, want any more explanation on, on exactly yeah, what you're talking well, about it, please yeah cuz people will hear this and not do anything with it without no. knowing the why yes. but let's give them the why so take, take the, um, take, take, are you looking for the why or the how? The why. The how is going to be different for everybody, right? 
Yeah, I mean, the why would you do it? It's simply to make product discovery that much easier, right? Because when people come to a website, many times they have an expectation. And so that expectation is to find something that they are looking for. That's why they're going to the website in the first place. So if you make that first step easier for them to get to that product so they can look at the product details, that site search is one of the quickest and easiest things that you can do. It requires very little coding. And um, most people can do that with their developer very, very quickly. And what I would do just to be very specific about the how is just to put that site search. You can test it out. And that's what we do is A-B testing to make sure that these, um, uh, to, to, to make sure that the changes that we make on a website will are actually going to result in an improvement and not detract from, um, uh, not detract from conversions. So uh, you always want to test everything, but that in almost all cases, I would say fairly um, confidently that exposing site search is just something that um, in many cases is a just do it. But throw caution to the wind, always test it, always make sure you have a high level of uh, statistical, statistical significance before you implement that change and push it live. Amazing. All right, Scott, where can everyone find you if they want to reach out for your incredible service and what you do? What's the best way to find you? Yeah, so the website's very simple to uh, remember. It's ecommerceoptimizers.com. And uh, if anybody... Who's, who's listening, watching the show, wants to uh, have a free strategy session. It's complimentary. It's a 55-minute strategy session. I'll walk through your whole, uh, your whole website and um, give you some recommendations that you can implement straight away. Uh, you can just go to the website, and right on the homepage, there's uh, several areas that are very clearly marked where you can um, book a call with me. That's amazing. I know Dave's going to be disappointed he missed this, and I'm sure he'll have you back. But thank you so much for yeah. like awesome, great, great information. People are going to be really awesome with this. Yeah, thanks, guys. Great questions. Really appreciate it, and it was a pleasure uh, and a privilege to be on the show today. So thanks a lot. Thanks, thank you, Scott. Scott. Appreciate you. Bye. Okay, let's go. Jay, Jay McDonald, correct? Mick, like the hamburger. Yes. So it is McDonald. It is Mick in the notes. How are you, sir? Oh, just fine. How are you? Good. So we're going to talk about your book. Your book that's come out called Jay. With a, sorry, the book's called Strategic Jaywalking. Is that correct? That's correct. Awesome. I like that jaywalking. You know, you jaywalk in New York when I live there. You get a ticket, but I think everyone should be thinking outside the box and jaywalking. So let's dive into the concept of the book and the title and everything about you. All right. Uh, well, the idea of the book was uh, to write a book about life and leadership. The full title of the book is Strategic Jaywalking, The Secret Sauce to Life and Leadership Excellence. And it's a collection of stories and thoughts, observations on my experiences with leaders throughout my life, both good leaders and not so great leaders. And what, at least from my point of view, makes a great leader and what kinds of things can be stumbling blocks for being a, a great leader. The jaywalking piece of it, I've 
since I was a child and with my name, I learned about jaywalking and I always said I'm a natural jaywalker, a little bit tongue in cheek. And um, actually, as a 10-year-old, I was a lieutenant on the school safety patrol. Given the responsibility uh, of uh, letting adults and children, including teachers and parents, safely across the street at a very large, busy four-way intersection. So I was entrusted with the ability to judge traffic at 10, yet many adults are not trusted with making basic decisions as employees, as uh, people entrusted with responsibility and so forth. So I use jaywalking as a metaphor for thinking outside the box, coloring outside the lines, thinking differently, to use Steve Jobs' term, um, just being creative. I, I am innovative. Personally, over history, the large have eaten the small, the big eat the small. I think today the fast are eating the slow. And jaywalking is another way of saying, if you want to get from point A to point B, the shortest distance is a straight line. And I don't propose jaywalking across an interstate. <laughs> However, if you know where you want to get to and you're in the middle of a long block, why, if you can safely look both ways judge the traffic and go straight to your uh, destination, assuming it's not illegal or you're not doing anything uh, immoral or uh, unethical or, or illegal, why walk all the way up to the end of the block, wait for a flashing hand to turn green, walk across the street, walk all the way back down the block to your destination? In business terms and entrepreneurial terms, if we go to the crossing light, cross at the street signs or the crosswalks, perhaps other people have already beat us to the punch and we're too late. So that's the metaphor of, of, of the book. and. Uh, it's it's about being creative and innovative in a world that in the next 10 years is expected to change more than it has in the last 100 years. Yeah. yeah. Jay, I love we've that. We've a lot I of think... change just in the last few years due to the pandemic and the other ramifications of it. Sorry, Mike. Yeah. No, no, no problem. Jay, you said something that I think is really fascinating to me, and I was just thinking about this earlier this week, the idea that the fast are eating the slow. And I can't help but think about the, the proverb, he who hesitates in war is lost. 
And, and I think so frequently today, we see leaders who are hesitant to make decisions. They're scared of the idea of being wrong. They're afraid of the what ifs. So having studied and created this book, like what are some of the key indicators of effective leadership? And in a world where leaders are hesitant to make decisions, especially in business, how can we empower them and give them permission to take those risks? Well, yeah, you raise a good point, and indecision is a decision. <laughs> because as you said with that proverb, uh, he who hesitates has lost oftentimes. And I think the qualities of successful leaders, I first say it starts with, with the leader. It's self-awareness. It's knowing who you are. It's taking that hard look in the mirror and being brutally honest and objective with yourself, knowing what your strengths are and what maybe some of your challenges are, things you're good at, things you may not be as good at. The best leaders are candid with themselves and honest about nobody's an A-plus in everything. Uh, and they're trade-offs. You may be an A in uh, human relations or relationships, and you might be a C in uh, quantitative things or math or finance or what have you. You might be good at marketing, but horrible at operations. Many entrepreneurs uh, and business owners or visionaries and ITs. I work with leaders every day as part of my, uh, I tell people I've flunked retirement five times. I was a serial entrepreneur and owned and ran and grew uh, five different companies that we built and sold, but I have to stay in the game. Uh, I want to be engaged try to make a difference. And most of the entrepreneurs that I work with and have served on boards with over the years are ADD in some way. We were the ones that got put in timeout. They didn't call it timeout when I was younger, but <laughs> you're put in the corner. And or on your report card, you got little X's in, uses self-control or talks too much or whatever, doesn't pay attention enough. So not everybody is that way. There, there are plenty of, I mean, everybody has the potential to, to be a good leader. So you first need to give yourself permission to fail and realize that failure isn't the end of the world. Winston Churchill had a great quote, and I'm paraphrasing it, but basically it was success is moving from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. And part of jaywalking or innovation, in my opinion, is giving your teams permission to fail. The thing about decision-making that is, I believe, obvious if, if you think about it, but not so obvious 
when you think you've got to get 100% solutions, you've got to be perfect. And being perfect is next to impossible. There are all sorts of stories in my book about from famous leaders, including Colin Powell and people like that, who say 80% solutions are fine. If you seek 100% solutions, you're going to be too late. Uh, or you'll never make a decision because you, none of us are perfect. And so you make the best decision with the best information you have. And then you gather more information after you've made that decision and you make another decision. The beauty of life is you get to make additional decisions, unless they're life and death. And sometimes there are those. And you got to be pretty well right on that. But aside from that, most business decisions and the decisions that we make in life and, and those who are leaders make are decisions that are imperfect, but we keep getting to do a little better. It something I do speaking, uh, on leadership around the country and I, I gave a recent speech and one of the videos I showed in the speech was the SpaceX spaceship that went up roughly three or four weeks ago off the coast of Texas, Corpus Christi, and it launched past the launching pad, and as it was ejecting its booster rockets, it exploded and right back into the Gulf of Mexico. But the SpaceX team who was watching this and so forth, they cheered. They were high-fiving each other, and they just crashed a multi-million dollar spaceship. And you kind of think about that and say, what the hell are they doing? But they viewed that as a positive step toward the, because their objective was mm. to get past the launch pad. Don't blow up the launch pad. So in their own way, that was successful. You know, to us as independent observers who aren't Elon Musk and the richest person in the world who can afford that, this, uh, we would say, oh, how horrible. But their ultimate goal is not that mission, but to get to get people to the moon, to Mars, to other places. And they know they're going to have setbacks along the way. Nobody died. Big piece of equipment uh, didn't go further. But on the other hand, They've learned things to fail forward, to, to mm. keep getting better. Other things I think great leaders need is curiosity. They need that mindset of realizing they don't know what they don't know. None of us do. So having a, an ability to ask good questions and to dig deeper Oftentimes, the problem is not really the problem. It's the surface. But you got to dig deeper to get to the real problem. And 
having that ability to ask questions and to listen, listen to learn, not to respond. And we're kind of wired to think about what our answer is going to be after they answer theirs. And we don't listen in that way. So listen to, to get better and just zip it up. Shut your mouth. Listen and silent have the same letters, believe it or not. And maybe we should just shut up and listen and you get better that way. I also think the best leaders have humility and that's part of this self-awareness too. And they have enough humility and self-awareness to surround themselves with people who are better than they are or certainly bring things to the table that they don't bring mm -hmm. to the table. And they allow the whole team to bring synergies and talents and efforts together in a way to optimize the, the, the whole process. They also are accountable and responsible. They accept responsibility and take blame. They're not people that make excuses and blame it on everybody else like most of our politicians do. So, yeah. And they also have a way of engendering trust. Trust is the glue that makes an organization click. So those are some of the things. So where everyone can get the book on Amazon and they can find you, it's in the notes, jmcdonald.com. That's correct, Jay? That's that's correct. And the book's available in ebook, audiobook, and hardcover. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Dave, unfortunately, is stuck somewhere in Scotland. I don't know where he is, but I'm sure he'll want to have you back and, well, you know, that, put it all together. That's the home of my... Uh, ancestors. Uh, so, uh, well, that's something so positive, there, right? There, there See, be work to be stuck, yeah. but it, right. it, it's wonderful getting to know both of you. And thank you, thank Jay. You we so appreciate you for having me on your program. Thank you. Amazing. Hey, have a great See day. See you soon. Awesome. Amazing. Okay, next guest is Rebecca Mountain. Rebecca, you have the best name. Rebecca <laughs> Thank you. That is my name's called Mike Diamond and Mike Unbroken, but Rebecca Mountain, I'm telling you, that's a great name. You got Welcome. I run a mastermind. I call it the goat mastermind, and the, the symbol is a mountain goat. Mountain goat. I, I love it. I like it. Well, welcome to I'm the here show. For it. I'm Mike Diamond, it's Mike Unbroken. Dave is was supposed to be on and usually he sneaks in. Maybe he'll sneak on. He's stuck in Scotland somewhere. I heard. It's all, it's all about you today anyway, not about us. So let's talk about this new book of yours. It's The Dragon uh, and the Goat, correct? That's right. That's the one. All right, let's <laughs> dive into it. I love it, The Dragon and the Goat. So let's talk about The Dragon and the Goat. Why The Dragon and the Goat? Let's talk about the book. Let's talk about you. And it's all, it, it, the stage is yours. We're sure. here for you. Okay. Uh, Quick Coles knows version of my life. I grew up in a cult. Um, I crashed my car, rolled it on a six lane highway on March 17, 2008 and had one of those pivotal cataclysmic moments of, I think I've been doing something wrong all my life. Cause they told me that if I thought about leaving, 
that I would die one of two ways, cancer or a car crash. And I had just survived the car crash. And I'm like, hold the phone here. Like, I think they might be wrong about a few things. And then I really started to piece things together. So I just blew everything sideways. So, you know, uh, from standing at the side of the road, you know, not knowing how to do anything because it's it just, you, as a woman in this cult, um, it's men, children, houseplants, dogs, cats, women, somewhere down kind of at the bottom. Um, so I had to start it kind of all over again. So over the years since then, it's been 15 years, um, I've rebuilt myself. I've started five different companies. Um, I've worked in various different industries and I settled on performance coaching. And here's why. And this is where the book comes from. Everything I do is predicated on helping people be happy, wealthy, and fulfilled because I was miserable, poor, and really was not only felt like I didn't matter, but was repeatedly told that. So a lot of programming. So I wanted to understand how do we reprogram our brains to actually live our greatest of all time life. So that's the goat part of the book. But to get to the greatest part of our lives, we have to kind of pull the dragon away. And so that's the dragon. And that's actually the lizard part of our brain, right? But I thought lizard wasn't very scary. So we go with the dragon because that's a little bit more like, woo. So the dragon and the goat um, was predicated on one question. Why don't we do the work we're supposed to be doing? I work with clients all over the place and they're, well, I know I should do this. And if only I did that, and if I got out of my way this way, you know, I could scale up to a billion dollars, scale up to a million dollars, see my family actually enjoy my days. Um, so my question that I sought to understand is why don't they do that? And it's because of this war. So we have the part of us, the dragon that holds us back, fight, flight, freeze, people pleasing, comparing ourselves to others, don't make a mistake, play the safe game. And that is at war constantly with our desire to be great. And so, you know, when you, when you look at this, what the book, book looks like, the tagline under here is the one that wins is the one you feed. And so there's strategies on how to shrink the dragon. So minimize that part of our life so we can actually step into our greatness. That's love it. it. Yeah, love it. Lo Go love that, Rebecca. I, I think that's such a big part of the journey, right? When, when I created my company, it was realizing that in order to face an identity shift, you must have a lot of support elements of belief, figuring out the what, but most importantly, executing the how. And you and I, and probably most people watching would agree that most people falter at the how part because that's where the work comes into play. Mm -hmm. And so when you're in this and you're looking at life, and, and, and first off, thank you for sharing your incredible story. I mean, growing up in a cult is, is a hell of a journey to have to go through. And, you know, I, I think about the indoctrination and brainwashing you must have gone through and then mm -hmm. to now brainwash yourself, i.e. cleaning your brain to become mm -hmm. the person you are today requires actually showing up and so I, I guess really and obviously this is proposed in the book but like what are the things that people need to do to start creating this change in their life so interestingly i created sort of a, a very brief sort of five-step methodology which i've called the goat path i know there's a theme here um so normally and it actually goes left to right not right to left so it starts at our reality and a lot of people are like i don't like where i am so what do we normally do we go like, I'm gonna hustle grind, I'm gonna crush it, I'm gonna work 90 hours a week. And what ends up happening is they just dig a deeper hole because mm -hmm. we act according to what we believe. And we talk about reprogramming, that's where a lot of it happens. So if our belief system is pulling us in this way, I'm not good enough, I'm not gonna make it, this isn't gonna work, all those kinds of things, 
then it creates a resistance to where we actually want to go. So we don't make calls. We don't follow up. We, we know we're supposed to, but we start skipping things. We avoid kind of work. So then the next question is, well, how do you start believing in yourself? Like you can't just go like, you know, I love Ted Lasso and everything, but you can't slap the word believe on a wall and kind of like, woo, fixed, right? So the, net, the final two steps are thoughts, because our thoughts, thought often enough, become what we believe, which then drives our actions, which then creates our reality. And then coupled with thoughts very closely is how we feel. So our emotions um, and emotional regulation, the more I did my research, like I wanted to know what do the billionaires do? Like what did mm -hmm. they actually do? And when you look at like hedge funds and um, like trillion dollar companies like that, what do they have? They have meditation rooms. And Ray Dalio actually credits emotional regulation and being chill and not losing it in any situation. So if you can do that, and the book goes through all the different strategies to do it. So if your emotions drive your thoughts, which creates your belief system, which drives your actions, that's actually how you change your reality. So that's the methodology that I teach. And people are variously strong and extremely weak at one of those five stages. So I have two questions. The first one is, because you were born into a cult that would be, I wasn't. What, oh, you wasn't. No, oh, okay. I All joined. Right. I, so I had eight years of what would be considered normal life. Christmas, Easter, you know, could wear whatever I want, but I was eight years old when I went in. So it was eight until 32. But someone put you in the cult. My parents did. Yeah. Okay. All right. So here's a question. It was not so choice. It was not choice. All right. All right. All right. So do you feel, see, all right, so when we look at rituals, routines, everyone comes from some kind of culture and yes. cults are built off culture, which is rituals and routines, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone comes from some kind of past. So Mike and I were mentally, physically abused and we went through all that, that stuff, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. And, and so then there's a part of you and every human being has to go when you say the dragon, it's really the hero's journey. You have to face your own dragon. You got it. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be the, to, to become the greatest of all time in your time and reality in space and time. You have to face the dragons. Mm -hmm. Now, that means you have to challenge the culture, the cult and the upbringing, whatever it is. You right. Do. The rules, mm -hmm. rituals and everything it is. Right. So now what I because I, I do addiction. So I'm an interventionist. 17 years sober but no one actually intervened on me i realized i had that epiphany mm -hmm. i've got to stop and now a lot of those people are dead and now i either get them sober at what point did you because it did were you able to not have the resentments because that's the mm -hmm. biggest thing that keeps people stuck yes see we can leave the past right but mm -hmm. every time we start to succeed that programming, the guilt, the shame, the self-sabotage is mm -hmm. usually buried deep in the subconscious and it's to do with resentments, mm -hmm. it's to do with anger, and mm -hmm. that keeps us stuck in that programming, right? Because mm -hmm. we keep, it's hard. Mm -hmm. How much work did you have to do on those resentments and that That's kind of question. stuff? I did a ton of work on that one. So two things. So one is in around forgiveness and the other one is around guilt and shame. Right. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Yes. And then anger. Anger is my hot rock. It sits on my heart. And that's how, like I just like I feel it. Like I can if you said, what does your anger look like? That's what it's a lava rock. It sits right here and it just slowly burns, right? And <laughs> yes. you know, it's and it's not healthy because like you know, you get these things called, you know, these uh, these moments where it just kinda goes boom, you know, and then you don't do it. Anyway, 
So the first work I did was on resentment, on not be like I was so angry at these people for how they made me feel, you know, the judgment, the rejection, the, you know, you like, because I was told to like to die to yourself, but like literally, like you are nothing, you should act like nothing, you should never succeed. And anytime I did well in life, I'd find a way of self-sabotaging myself. So it was a lot of anger and resentment at those people for creating that programming. So what I did is I changed the emotional relationship I had with it. I cannot change that it's in my past. There's no letting go or getting over it. I hate it when people say that. It's cruel, really, it's cruel. Um, but what I did is I looked back and I thought, how poisonous and miserable are their lives that they felt it was okay to shame a person like me. And I looked at them for their pain. And that's what I saw. I saw their pain. I saw their poison. I saw their fear. Um, and I turned my resentment almost into compassion, but more, I just felt really sorry for them. And when I, when I can look back at all of these times in which I was publicly shamed um, in front of people, or it was just rumors gone around and just the crushing, you know, weight of judgments that, you know, in this life and the hereafter, just in case, you know, this life's judgment wasn't bad enough. Um, I'm just able to look at them and kind of going, your life must super suck. And I'm really sorry you live that way, but you are not part of me. And that has allowed me to let it go. So that's kind of how I dealt with the resentment on that side. Now, what that left is a residual guilt and shame, right? So that helped my emotional relationship outwardly towards other people, but that did not help me in here. So I worked with one of my therapists. She was brilliant. I mention her in the book quite often. Um, <laughs> she sat me down one day and I'm going to try to do my best to explain this process. You guys probably gone, gone through it based on the work that you guys have done. But she sat me down with an empty chair beside me and she's like, what does your guilt and shame look like? And I'm like, oh, it's big, it's hairy, it's gross, it smells, it's kind of like Chewbacca if Chewbacca hadn't showered for his entire life, right? <laughs> she's like, okay, strangely evocative. Anyway, so she says, I want you to look at your guilt and shame and I want you to thank it. And I'm like, come again? I'm supposed to thank this like what for and she's like because when i was small being angry acting out created punishment and so i became the peacemaker right i calmed everybody down i made sure that no one got in trouble so i thanked my guilt and shame and i said i don't need you anymore i needed you once i don't need you now and then what she said she's like okay if you can look as guilt and shame the way i look at it now that's why it's shrink the dragon not slay the dragon because we can take some of these feelings and turn them into our allies. So guilt now to me is a, like a behavioral correctional device, right? So I have four kids, 17 to 25, and my 17 year old and I, we got in a big shouting match one day. My new approach to guilt is, I meant every word, don't get me wrong of what I hollered at my 17 year old. But the new healthy guilt is, but I didn't need to yell. I could have just said, hang on a second, let's have this conversation later when we've cooled down and then had it. So I, I've turned these diabolically damaging things like guilt and shame and anger, and I've turned them into things that are constructive and helpful. Anger helps me stand up for myself. Guilt yes. helps me with my relationships with others. Shame helps me to say, are there things I can do for myself to improve? So those are the ways that I've dealt with those two things, the resentment on the outside, guilt and shame on the inside.
Brilliant. Yeah, that's, it's so incredibly powerful, Rebecca. And, Thank you. Um, I, I think that Mike and I would be in agreement that the world needs more incredible humans like you. Um, and I think that everyone who's watching right now needs to read this book. Um, can you tell us where we can find it? Yep, you can find it on Amazon. So Amazon, anywhere that they sell books, literally. Um, and of course, on my website, uh, RebeccaMountain.ca. Um, there's that, there's all my programs and other things. I do like tons of videos, like little snippets of things like this, where I can help people just to be happy. If everyone can wake up every day and like, oh my God, I cannot wait to get going, then I feel like I've actually, I've done my mm. work. There's a really good so. podcast. I'll I'll, uh, I'll find your email. We'll, I'll, I'll message sure. you. Uh, a, a, a great a guy that empowers women. It's an emotional woman podcast. Mm -hmm. all, all he does is interview women. I did like this uh, speaking gig with him. So I'll connect you with him sure. so we can promote your book because he'll love your story and your platform. Oh, great. I'll help you out, okay? And then That'd obviously I'll get the book and read it. But um, thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for guys. coming on the show. Appreciate you having I know me. Dave will want to have you on, so we're for so sure. here. I hope so. I'd love to do this again. There's so much I'd love to share, but I appreciate for you sure. guys taking the time. Thank you so much. Wow, she was awesome. Powerful, Mikey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Powerful, so man. we've got one more guest, and that is Sarah Hill. Hi. You're on, you're on mute. You got it? Hello, hey. gentlemen. Good to see you. How are you? Good, Sarah. How are you? I'm doing well. So, What's new in your world? That's a good question. There's always something new in my world, but it's, you know, it's not about me and Mike. It's about you today, Sarah. That's right, buddy. We, it's all about you. We, we get enough time talking to ourselves. So you are the CEO of, and it's, is it Helium? Or he, has it pronounced Helium or Helium? Can you hear me? Yeah, helium is a drugless drug for uh, the self-management of anxiety and sleep. And so it's uniquely powered by your body's electricity uh, via data uh, from smartwatches or EEG headbands. That's what, incredible. Go, Mike. So you go, Mike. No, go. Yeah, no, I mean, I, mean I, I love this. I am a biohacker. I have a pimp mat. I have red light therapy. I have, you know, a halo. Like, I'm all about this life. Um, let's go into this a little bit more because I, I don't want to lose people immediately. Can you break down to the very third grade level because I don't even understand this, what it is exactly that, that you do with helium and how it helps people with anxiety and depression? So it's media therapy, but it's immersive media therapy. So in light of you know what Apple just announced with their new Apple Vision Pro virtual reality goggles, um, for the last, you know, uh, six years, we've been creating immersive media ex uh, experiences that are designed to downshift the nervous system. And so with traditional meditation, uh, which is wonderful, by the way, how are you supposed to learn to control what you can't actually see? And with Helium, we take the data that comes from fitness trackers, smartwatches, EEG headbands, and we display them inside these experiences so you can actually see your feelings and uh, learn to self-regulate them, akin to biofeedback and neurofeedback, but on steroids inside either augmented reality environments or virtual reality environments inside the goggles. And so these experiences, these digiceuticals, if you will, are used inside of areas of acute situational confined stress. Um, anything that sucks that you have to go through, uh, whether it be um, uh, I had a bad day at the office, healing is used with veterans, uh, with with nursing for burnout, um, employee wellness, mm. 
And it's just a drugless, non-harmful coping mechanism for this, the stress Olympics, you know, that, that not all of us have trained for. Yeah. So you're a, you're a news anchor. You did a lot of stuff on TV. What, what inspired you? Was it just watching people really melt down, the stress of work, just how life has been so difficult? What inspired you to take on this role and this incredible, like, this is incredible what you're doing. What, what inspired it? Having to cover the worst day of someone's life, right, over and over and over again. As a, a journalist, you cover rapes, murders, homicides. Uh, we went in with the trauma teams in the aftermath of the, the tsunami in Sri Lanka and Indonesia. So it's very, very common mm. for uh, journalists and even former you know, journalists to uh, have difficulty sleeping. And that was ultimately what led me to form Helium was... Um, uh, uh, you know, insomnia that impacted my my uh, mental wellness, and so developed it for me as well as the millions of people who struggle with anxiety. And we started giving virtual tours to a group of aging vets who weren't able to travel, uh, and that watching them react inside the goggles, uh, we, it was clear it was impacting their physiology. They weren't just watching these stories; they were feeling them. And so we turned up with, uh, ter- teamed up with neurofeedback, biofeedback specialists, um, and screening their bio data. With, with this, where do, what are the elements of this that produce efficacy, right? What I'm trying to understand is as someone is going through this process with you, is this something that is, uh, I guess what I'm trying to understand is what is the how and why of this being effective for people? Um, as someone who's been through massive anxiety and depression, I've tried literally everything you could ever imagine. I very likely am going to try this too because I'm always like, let me try the thing. But but what is what is the framework? What is the secret sauce that that makes helium effective and efficable? Mm-hmm. So it's validated in seven peer-reviewed journals uh, to quickly reduce anxiety and, and improve mood um, in a completely drugless way. And so... Um, uh, it works by allowing you to learn to self-regulate and it's not a replacement for psychotropic medication. It's not a replacement for professional counseling. Think of helium like mental fitness in a way, uh, in a workout, if you will, that allows you to uh, see what has historically been unseen inside the bodies and your data right now, your fitness trackers are tracking yourselves with a flat number that's sequestered on your wrist right? So helium spatializes that data. It allows you to see it and interact with it and actually have a relationship with it. So instead of that number on your Apple watch being an 89 uh, for your heart rate, it's a solar system that uh, comes to life inside your living room in augmented reality. And you actually have the ability to lighten and darken that solar system by changing your heart rate and changing your brain patterns. So it's adding gravity and taking the blinders off of traditional meditation. Wow, so it's basically building your own self-awareness, like you said, like a tracker, so you can actually... Now, here's a, here's a question. That, is, that can't cause more anxiety, can it? Because then you start seeing all this stuff and go, oh my God, what's going on inside my body? That doesn't freak some people out, does it? It's like any time you would, you know, ride a bike for the first time, right? It's a learning experience. And ultimately, the brain believes what it sees. 
So um, for instance, uh, sailors out um, on the USS Nimitz in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, they can't see nature for months and months. With helium, we can put them in virtual nature and their, their body is responding as if they were in a beach. Now the mind obviously knows they're not in front of the beach, but when their eyes are seeing it, you see them take deep breaths, they relax. Um, and you know that's just what we're doing. Just as a, a poor media diet can impact your physiology, so too can um, a, a, a media diet that has good fiber in it um, to allow you to learn to self-regulate uh, and have a, a drugless, non-harmful coping mechanism. I like that. Mike? Yeah, that, that's powerful because, you know, one, one of the things I'm thinking about is I actually recently stopped watching horror movies because I realized they were giving me anxiety, even though I love them. And so it's like the brain cannot decipher that reality versus this fiction. And so I love so much that this is built in the VR world. Um, one of the things that I'm curious about is like, what are the, what are the, is, are your peripherals, are these exclusive to you as a brand? Is this someone anyone has access to? Like, how do people get started on this journey and this process with you? You can download our mobile apps on iOS or Android. So if you have a mobile device, uh, a mobile device is an augmented reality uh, device. Uh, it's, uh, you don't need a, any kind of headset. Headset are, are, are optional. But if you want the fully immersive experience, uh, you can get a Pico headset. You can get a Quest uh, for a Meta headset. Um, or in the future, you can get an Apple Pro headset. And it will allow you to step inside these stories, which obviously is more immersive and more engaging than flat to the meditation apps. So and, um, was there a, a blind spot with people? I were, I'm in the intervention world and I'm on the TV show intervention. And when we go to shoot, mm -hmm. it's really hard to watch addicts that close. And, and, and like a lot of the writers come from a journalistic background. A lot of people don't understand that, that journalism is no joke when you're when you're dealing with hardcore stories and stuff. People think it's like, oh yeah, you write a story. They don't realize how it affects you. Was it were people a little bit um, unaware of how it, 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 the stress remains in you when you started to tell people, no, this is really having an effect on me? Or were they like, oh yeah, we get it? Was there like was there a battle there? No, because I think so many uh, journalists have come forward with you know their own their own stories like it's very common for a journalist to struggle with anxiety or addiction um, or panic attacks um, and the reason why it's common is that you know counseling and therapy is is common for a police officer who or or you know uh, yeah. maybe somebody who's gone through who's physically been in that experience but covering it and listening to the stories and, and listening, interviewing parents who've lost children. Like for me, that is like the worst, you know, ever. And, you know, that journalist, the, the police officer or uh, anyone else might have a few days off or might be on, you know, administrative leave or be paired with a council, but there's not that same kind of structure set up for um, a journalist yet. And um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that news organizations in, in the, the future will uh, start implementing you know some some ways uh, and mental health hygiene. You know, just as we are washing our hands, you know, so too should we be having some uh, uh, practices to keep our, our minds and our hearts healthy. 
So true. Couldn't agree more. I was just going to say thank you so much for this. I, I love that technology is continuing to progress in ways that are progressive for people and their mental health. Um, where can people learn more and, and become a part of Helium? So you can go to tryhelium.com and helium is spelled H-E-A-L-I-U-M where heal is the root word. And um, you can download our apps on iOS or Android, create a login. We have a 14-day free trial and it's it's just a drugless drugs and a way to uh, self-regulate. Thank you so much. Awesome. Is Sarah there? Oh, oh there You're she welcome. is. Thank you. So well, I'm, keep going, gentlemen. No, thank you. Have a beautiful day, Sarah. Thank you. All right, Mikey, quick takeaway because you're in the car in Joshua Tree. Just so you know, just so you know, Joshua Tree, you too, is one of my favorite albums. Just so yeah. you know. I was just talking about that with, with one of my, my close friends. Um, I only will leave my vacation for David Meltzer. I just want to put that into the ether right now. This only happens for David. So whenever he sees this, we'll make sure that he knows. Uh, no, man, I, I love it. I'm happy to see you. My, my biggest takeaway, man, is just remembering that the most important thing, we heard this multiple times today, is just paying attention to your mental health and having clarity about the things that you need every day and, and getting and finding and seeking and supporting uh, and getting the help, right? So many people are in this world thinking that they have to do this all alone. And it's just a consummate reminder, whether it's the Helium app, whether it's getting a coach, whether it's reading the leadership book, whatever that thing is, there, there's an opportunity for you to get support. Yeah, I love that. You know what I like, um, just it resonated with me, especially um, Rebecca. I was trying to tell someone the other day that you've got to go on the hero's journey. And you got mm. to face your dragons. And this person is struggling. And I'm like, if you make this to make the choice to take the road less traveled, it's yep. hard. And I'll tell you the lesson that I try to teach him. And it was crazy. Have you ever seen the movie Gladiator? Of course. Okay. So when I was coming out through acting school, everyone thought Russell Crowe wasn't you know, going to be anything. And he worked hard and no one really wanted to work with him. And he did well. So he gets on the set of Gladiator with Ridley Scott and he tells them straight out, the script is crap. We've got 20 pages, that's all we have. So they first shoot the first 20 pages and they're both sitting there like, what do we do with the rest of the script? And I thought to myself, think about this. You're on the movie Gladiator. Most actors would complain of their agent, they'd walk out, they'd quit, whatever. They'd be like, this is garbage. It's not gonna go anywhere. He figured it out. Mm. And that's what life's about figuring it out in the moment, being able to pivot and always having perseverance and patience. And that's how you become one of the greatest of all time. And every day you're going to have to learn to slay a dragon. Whatever that dragon is, whether you're stuck in traffic, whether you're caught in an airport, whether you, you get hit with an I, uh, something from the IRS, that's slaying the dragons every day we have to do. Do you know what I mean? And what you just said, you reach out to a mentor or you've got to stay in process. And if you can do that, then you end up winning the Oscar for Gladiator. But when you hear that story, you're like, that wasn't even a good script. You would think it was a great script. It was probably the greatest script in the world. No, it was garbage. And he made something out of nothing. That's why That's right. he, you see what I mean? That's a Gladiator. What an ironic thing. So like, that's why I love you. You're in the car, you get it done. That's right. Just, 
and we had a great episode. So I love you, brother. And love you, man. And you know, hey, oh, let's hope Mel's is good. Have fun in Josh Retreat, and I'm sure next week. See Bye, you guys. Brother. Thanks for coming to Office Hours, guys. See you soon.